Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Alistair Duffy from UCL, and we're going to be talking about geoengineering in the polar regions. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be on. Okay, so you are uh, you're currently at UCL, and that, that can cover a multitude of sins because it's a, a very large beast, UCL. So what exactly do you do? Yeah, so I'm a PhD student been here for like a year and a half now in the earth sciences department at UCL. I'm working with Pete Irvine and uh, also uh, Michelle Samadoff and Julian Strove, who are kind of polar uh, climate scientists. And Pete is a leading figure in the, the geoengineering science. And I basically he is, use quite... he is indeed. I actually wrote to Pete this morning to ask him to become an editor on ACP because ACP, that's atmospheric chemistry and physics. We don't like acronyms on review too. But ACP wrote to me and asked me to be an editor of their climate physics uh, output. And I'm like, probably not the right guy. Did you really mean to write to me about this? So I sent it to Pete because he did physics and does climate. And so I assume that he knows a bit more about it than I do, which is probably true because he's been on Review 2 podcast before and he's explained quite a lot about it to me then. So it'd be very surprising to me. But Pete didn't know vastly more about uh, this than I do. So what was your background? Yeah, so my undergraduate was in physics. So I that was a four-year integrated master's in physics. And then I, in my final year of that, I kind of did a fair amount of geophysical fluid dynamics, I suppose. So that was kind of my way into climate uh, is from the, you know, solving fluid dynamics on a rotating earth. Uh, that was sort of my routine. Then I spent lots a bit of time... Lots of Coriolis force solutions and stuff like that. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Lots of... Did a little bit of that, that in mechanical engineering. My favourite quote about people, uh, about physics is... Um, there's physics and there's stamp collecting, which is just a great summary of how important physics is to all other areas of our lives. So I, I'm, uh, I'm pleased you've done physics. If I was slightly cleverer, then I'd have done physics and not mechanical engineering, I think. But mechanical engineering is where the stupid physicists end up, basically. That's my, my view on the subject. And uh, it's actually, this is actually borne out by, by good psychometric data as well. Like, if you look at the IQ scores for people who do physics, they are uh, like substantially smarter than I think almost all, almost all, or all other academic disciplines. So you can you can sit atop your golden academic pedestal and feel thoroughly smug about your intellectual brilliance and how much smarter you are than the mortals. So you're you're working with Pete. So is Pete your professor then? Because not quite caught up with his meteoric rise. Uh, I'm not sure Pete's exact job title. I think he might be, I don't want to get it wrong. I'm not sure of his job title, but he, he's my primary supervisor and he teaches courses here at UCL on um, like climate physics and climate science and uh, well, I think some climate modelling stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's done quite a bit of climate modelling in the past. Um, I've known Pete for a long time and I'm a fan of him and I think he'll do a sterling job of supervising you. So you were, just before we were recording, you actually started blowing smoke which is probably why i was so complimentary about your uh, uh your physics degree because you made me feel quite smug but you might want to detail for the readers exactly how you made me feel smug i've called them readers again i've got this terrible tick of calling them readers they're not readers you don't read a podcast you listen to a podcast well, i cannot get that into my thick head see that's why i did mechanical engineering not physics I can't even name readers and listeners correctly but yeah you were blowing smoke so do it again because i liked it when you <laughs> 
Yeah, although you read audiobooks, right? I mean, I would, I would say I read an audiobook. Perhaps we do read a podcast. Anyway. Well, there um, you go. Yeah, I, 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 was... I do read. I say when I'm reading a book on Audible, I, I, I do say I read it because, like, you don't, you don't really say it. I listened to, you know, Money by Martin Amis to give you an example of what I'm uh, listening to at the moment. I, um, you do describe yourself as reading books. Um, but anyway, get on with your, yeah, get so, on with your uh, compliments because I like my compliments. <laughs> I don't get enough compliments I guess... in my life. I, my my route into this PhD, I guess, was that I took some time out of academia. I was working for actually a, a small consultancy, mostly on like decarbonizing the UK electricity, or UK uh, energy grid, essentially. And well, I find that super fascinating, and I'll probably get distracted from talking about solar geoengineering and go on about energy mix and, and stuff for a while because I love that sort of stuff. That's uh, yeah. Jesse Jenkins I'll... is really good at that. Um, he's on the sort of leading lights. I don't know whether you follow him on Twitter. We never had him on the podcast because he doesn't do a lot of stuff that is directly in his field but he's a he's a good person to follow he knows knows a lot about about that kind of stuff do you follow me on twitter or not i think i do yeah i've seen the name okay that's the name anyway so i during that time i, I was sort of getting a bit more into the solar geoengineering world i read ollie morton's book planet remade and i started listening to this podcast actually and probably was one of the early listeners of some of the earlier episodes of this podcast and how did you find it did, did pete tip you off or, or did you just stumble so. upon it I think I might have literally just searched geoengineering in the Spotify engine to try to find a podcast on it. Well, um, I, I, I tell you what, I feel utterly delighted about that, right? Because my my kind of mission, I've realised, like, I'm probably a sort of fairly hopeless academic, to be honest. You know, I've written a few papers and none of them have become spectacularly well cited. And but what I have done is I've seemed to have got quite a lot of people hooked on my crack, right? I sort of highly motivated by. Solar geoengineering, I think it's a really important field, and I find it generally quite interesting, really. That sort of combination of social and policy and all the other nonsense that goes in it. And I, I, I'm quite evangelical about it, not as a kind of policy solution, but as an academic discipline. And I, I find it um, hugely satisfying that I've managed to do the first paper or, you know, otherwise support people into their career through kind of leading them into this field or whatever with, with a quite a large number of people now you know there's i think there's about five or six people that have either done their first paper with me or have got them into the field in some other way and 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 i think the reason that i'm quite good at that is because i didn't have a very easy ride coming into it i really feel the sort of pain of being outside academia and not knowing how to get into it so i'm i'm really chuffed that people like you come to me and say hey you know you you kind of put me on this path because I think it's like it's super important and also you're, you're obviously a bit younger than me like 20 odd years younger than me and um you know people in your generation or close to that and some of the younger co-authors I've had some of them are in their teens still and and they're going to be making these policy decisions when I'm being pushed around my care home so I'm pleased very pleased that I've got you into this so there you go anyway well that's enough about me being delighted I want to hear a bit more about your research so you're talking about polar work. So I just want to draw people's attention to, if I get the name pronunciation right, it's Madeline Hotelin, I think, who was our most recent podcast guest, or most recent but one. And she is 17 and did her first paper on SRM. Not with me, unfortunately. I'd have loved to have claimed that scalp, but no, that wasn't me. She just published that independently and then came on the podcast to talk about what she knocked out when I was 17, when she was 17, when I was 17, and I was getting drunk in the local park and trying to pull other teenagers, mostly unsuccessfully. So she's done a lot better with her life than I did with mine. 
So that's worth looking out. You talking about a very similar subject, and I would encourage people specifically to listen to that podcast, not only just to you know, kind of uh, get a bit more imposter syndrome than they might otherwise have, but also to to learn about what she researched, because I thought it was genuinely quite interesting. And your research is a good segue from that, because you were looking at basically different ways in which you could, in theory, adjust the albedo of the Arctic and the temperature of the Arctic, and some of them worked well and some of them didn't. Is that right? Yeah, I, to some extent. I guess the paper is, the title is Solar Geoengineering in the Polar Regions Review, and, and what we aim to do is essentially, we tried to do three things. The first was understand what happens to the polar regions under kind of conventional stratospheric aerosol injection scenarios. I'll call it SAI for now, and I guess. So under, under global SAI, what do we expect to happen to the polar regions and why? That, that's kind of the first thing we wanted to look at. Okay. Let me just put. Let me just pause you before going to depth because I want to unpack yeah. some sort of tiny little, tiny little things that you've unlocked there. Okay. So you started by saying we. So I think it's really important to you know firstly give due credit and also understand how the work that you've done fits into a context with other people. So who else were you collaborating with to do this work? Yeah. So this work is is a collaboration with my supervisory team for my PhD. So it's Pete Irvine, Michelle Samadoff, and Julian Stroke. Um, okay. So you've done it internal to UCL, right? Yeah. And the other thing is that you said that you're comparing it to SAI. So is this a paper? Because we always like to go a bit into the weeds in terms of how people have done the research, not just what they've discovered. So yeah. did you run your own model um, or did you review other people's modelling output? This is purely other people's modelling output. So it's it's such, And it's also purely other people's uh, papers, right? So it's, it's a review. And there's a little bit of novel putting data together, a very small amount in a couple of sections to some of the figures, but, but overall what we're doing here is just summarizing what the literature says about each of these topics. Okay, so let, let's break this down because people are going to want to hear about how they might go about doing similar research themselves. So there's a couple of research ways that you could do a review paper. So one is basically sort of summarizing the comments and integrating the figures and saying, you know, researcher A said this, researcher B said that. And then the alternative way of doing it is to have a sort of data munging approach. So you go and get your uh, the data outputs, the charts, the you know Excel files, or however people make the database available, and and then you actually do your own unique novel analysis, and you would regraph and recompare all of the uh, the information that, that's come out. It, that, that's correct, is it? That's how you. There are different approaches to review, and that's you know broadly how you might go about doing a review, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I guess the in my reviews kind of exist on spectrum from like most qualitative to most sort of quantitative in the sense that you might have a fully quantitative meta-analysis where you're doing some complex statistics on all the papers you can find under some search term. Ours is very much the former. The literature on most of these topics is pretty sparse. And in general, it's quite rare to find like the same number come up in, in two papers that you can directly compare, right? So in, in general, in this paper, we are taking a broadly qualitative approach to summarizing what the literature says and trying to understand. Um, okay. So that's really important. And, and this is also this is also where Madeline Hotelin ended up with her research. So it's it's important to understand this. So let me just repeat back to you what I think you've told me. So you're basically saying is that that there's been quite a lot of different model outputs that have covered different types of solar geoengineering. Okay. So people might look at shiny ice, they might look at putting stratospheric aerosols in. And each of these models have got substantial differences. They might have been run on different overall models. They might have had different input parameters. They might have had different control systems. They might have had different 
time periods. You know, there's a lot of things that could differ from model to model, right? And what you're basically saying is that you've done a qualitative review because it's not immediately easy and obvious to, you know, create a situation where you might be able to go and um, do a more quantitative analysis. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I think one thing I'd add is another thing that differs across studies is that they actually not, don't necessarily report the same numbers, right? So there's a lot of ways you might characterize efficiency of solar geoengineering. And it's okay. not well, like I've not heard that term before. I've, I've not but, heard that term before. So when you say efficiency of solar geoengineering, and I appreciate that it might be a contested term, but if you could give me an idea of what you understand that that term either does mean or could mean. Yeah, I guess my point was there are loads of ways you could interpret it. Right? And for example, in, in this paper, at one point, we try and define like a, a metric for the global cooling per unit injection expected under, say, injecting high latitude or, or low latitude. And we compare those two cases. And our metric we use at one point is you know, how much global mean temperature change do you achieve with uh, uh, injection of X megatons of SO2? And that would be like uh, one uh, metric. But what my, my point was more broadly that it's quite... Okay, that's like, so, like, so just, to re- just to repeat that and re- reanalyze what you said. So what you're basically talking about is something like a kind of drug potency, okay? So if you've got something like alcohol, you can drink, you know, a shot of whiskey, and it's what I think 25 mil, isn't it? And then that, that'll be about 10 mil of alcohol. And if you had 10 milliliters, say, LSD, you'd be dead, or, or at least very unwell. So you're basically saying one way of comparing solar geoengineering efficiency is to look at the mass efficiency, like how much stuff you put in to how much effect you get. So something like marine cloud brightening, which stuffs a lot of salt around, but it falls out relatively quickly, is much less mass efficient than something like SRM, where the particles hang around for a lot longer. Is that, that how you're describing it, or do I misunderstand you? I, I think it's slightly different. Yes, but I wouldn't use that. I'm not saying that we use that metric to compare different methods of solar geoengineering. I think that's only a meaningful metric within SAI. Okay. My, my point more, more broadly is just that's like, that's almost the most simple metric you can imagine. And that one we do manage to find to up, up in a few papers. For lots well, of let, let, let's, re, let's recap that, if I may. Okay. So I, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to break your thread. What I'm trying to do is make sure that people yeah. really deeply understand what you're saying. Okay. okay. So if you're looking at something like solar, solar geoengineering stratospheric aerosols, then yeah. you could, for example, stuff all of your aerosols in the circumpolar region. They'd last a few months and then fall out of the sky and end up on the ice sheet and you wouldn't get much kind of bang for your buck with them right the alternative is in the upward pipe of the Bureau of Dobson circulation somewhere near the equator and they'd float around for quite a long period of time and then they'd fall out of the sky so the mass efficiency of the second approach is much higher than the mass efficiency of the first approach because your particles are going to stick around a lot longer. So one of the ways that you might interpret the efficiency of solar geoengineering is to look at how much stuff hangs around for how long, right? Yeah, and I think I wouldn't... We could argue about the quantitative characterization you, you just gave. I mean, one of the questions we try and answer on our review is precisely that question. What's the number for what, what you just said is, is much more efficient? We try and put a number on that in one of our sections. Okay. But yeah, I'd that's... just like to draw everyone's attention to another way that mass efficiency can be really effective. So one of the key variables is the uh, homogeneity or uh, as alternatively referred to as 
monodisperse of your particle distribution. So if you have particles that are very finely tuned, so that they're exactly the size that you want, then the whole process works dramatically more efficiently than it might do if you are, if you have a kind of uh, much more random distribution of particles. So if you kind of think of them like pick and mix suites. So if you go to your pick and mix suite counter at your local cinema or whatever right and then you pick a load of random sweets out some of them are the right size and some of them are right are the wrong size then you're going to have a, a distribution of particles that's not particularly helpful when it comes to getting the optical properties that you exactly want whereas if you only pick up m&ms and they're all the same size then that the sweets that you get will will have the optical properties that you need right so that's another example of how that mass efficiency could be affected by your regime but your the way that you're thinking about this um, is perhaps overlooking that because you might assume a standard aerosol layer in some of the models. So even though the, the MIT you described is potentially very important, you're not necessarily using such studies or you know some of the studies that are available might not consider the variation in particle distribution because it isn't always considered in models. Right, that would be an example of how. The metric that you're describing might in practical terms take effect yeah yeah exactly and i guess that would be one reason for model disagreement in the number that i just said we would try to estimate right models would have different SL schemes and they would come up with different numbers for mass efficiency for those reasons for that reason okay so so you've got this attempt to compare these different uh, approaches and you're not comparing apples with oranges you're not saying well look marine cloud brightening uses more stuff than Stratospheric aerosol injection uses, but one marine cloud brightening scheme might use more stuff and another might use less stuff. And that's one way you can compare the efficiency. Uh, so where, where, are, where are other ways in which you could make a similar comparison? So, you know, one, one metric you might use is uh, the degree to which you successfully restore pre-industrial temperature without introducing additional and novel variations so everyone gets hotter and colder together not you end up with a patchwork of hot bits and cold bits right that could be another way is that the sort of thing that you consider or not yeah maybe i should just um talk through the board structure of the paper maybe that would be yeah sure just i feel like that's probably easier i mean i guess so so we, we try and do three different things in the paper one is to look at what happens to the polar regions under conventional global sai the second is then to compare what that with what would be different in the polar regions if we actually tried to put the injection mostly in those polar regions. So there's in the recent past, there's been a few studies that have started to think, well, what if we modeled actually injecting uh, aerosols? So, high latitude? so Fusioni has done quite a lot on that, hasn't he? Uh, springtime polar injection. That's the Cornell group in Ithaca under Doug McMartin, who've explored yeah, I think, um, uh, springtime. That's Walker Lee is the leader of on, on a couple of papers on that. But yeah, it's, it's with that group, with, with Dan Fusioni and with yeah, so the, the people in that group, it's a really important group. It's actually probably the premier group at the moment, more so than Harvard, which probably used to be. So that's Doug McMartin, Dan Vizioni, uh, Ewa or, or Eva, I can't remember how to pronounce it. I can't remember a surname. And there's another lady as well who I can picture, but I tried to remember her name yesterday and I couldn't remember it. And it's not come back to me today either, which is very frustrating. And Walker Lee, so Walker Lee's been on the podcast and i think hosted it as well dan has been on the podcast in the past and hosted it as well and so they are basically really sort of top of the game you know if you if you want to follow the field then they're one of the, the key research groups that it's worth being aware of obviously apart from 
Pete's rip at UCL, which is clearly the best in the world. But uh, anyway, and I will let you crack on and continue telling me what you're telling me. I think it's ever Bernard Bernard's, by the way, was the uh, right. Was Thank you for correcting my yes, um, inability to speak Polish or whatever it is. I, I, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, but yeah. So yeah, there's been in recent years there's been a bit of a, uh, a beginnings of people thinking about what happens if we inject at high latitudes, and clearly that would be expected to have some differences in how the polar regions would respond because you're blocking more of the sunlight locally. And so our second section of the paper, we essentially try to contrast polar climate changes under those high injection scenarios with under more global SAI scenarios. And then lastly, we, we kind of, as an extra part of the paper, we also look at some other local polar solar geoengineering techniques. And we, do three, we, we look at three of those. So marine cloud brightening, cirrus cloud thinning in the polar regions, which isn't technically solar geoengineering, but we, we bundle it within because it has lots of features in common. And then finally, sea ice albedo modification. So this is the idea that you could potentially try and make the surface of sea ice or actually water surrounding sea ice brighter by covering it with silicate beads, those small silicate beads. I'll stop there. Does that make sense? So there's, there's in broad terms of those three sections of the paper. Yeah. So you've got a, a number of different methodologies for comparing or for performing solid engineering, and you're comparing how these work. So you can either do your SAI more locally in the Arctic, or you can do the same, um, try and have the, the same optical effect, but using wholly different methods like shiny ice or stripping th- cirrus clouds. So cirrus cloud thinning is a bit of a black sheep. So just to recap, people are less familiar with it. What you're looking at doing is taking areas of, you know, when you get steam out of your kettle, so in clean air, you get clouds of aerosols and you can see this plume of steam a similar process happens in high atmosphere and it gives you icy cirrus clouds and by putting nucleation points into the clean air you encourage them not to form a big puffy cirrus cloud but to form much bigger droplets which then precipitate out into lower layers of the atmosphere and remove the cirrus cloud we haven't done a a great deal on that i think we might have one podcast on it but we haven't covered it in great detail so that's a quick recap of the science behind cirrus cloud thinning um interestingly when stratospheric aerosol particles rain out into cirrus clouds, they can have a potentially quite similar effect. So particularly in the polar regions, and you might have a thing or two to say about that, you can have this kind of hybrid approach where you're falling stratospheric aerosol particles to actually influence cirrus clouds. Did, did your research consider anything to do with that? Are you aware of any of your input papers that address that particular aspect of SRM? No, we haven't covered that, actually. And I haven't seen any discussion of that, but if you... Do you have a break on that? I'd be interested to have a look at it because, yeah, it's, it's, it's an important point. Um, I guess with the cirrus clouds more broadly, that one of the interesting aspects of cloud thinning in the polar regions is that in, in general, clouds have two effects on climate, right? If you have more low cloud, that can actually have a more low cloud would have a cooling effect because the reflection of sunlight kind of outweighs the, the blanketing of outgoing long wave radiation for low clouds, whereas generally in the climate system, the reverse is true for high clouds, and that's why thinning high clouds. Uh, might be might have a cooling effect whereas in the polar night so in the polar regions when there's no sunlight coming in obviously you take away that reflection effect completely which actually means that there's a stronger impact in general of cooling for any thinning of clouds in the polar nights and actually one an important point is that although we generally talk about cirrus cloud thinning in polar regions there's been a recent paper that came out talking about just mixed phase cloud thinning in general so any any thinning of clouds in the night would presumably have a cooling effect in the polar regions, not just cirrus cloud thinning. 
but but okay so so that's really interesting i've not come across that before so let's let me go through what i think you just told me on the physics so one of the problems with marine cloud brightening is that sometimes you can trigger precipitation by putting either droplets that are too large into the cloud or triggering the formation of droplets that are too large and the effect of that is that the cloud rains out and therefore there's less moisture in the atmosphere and you get less cloud now for marine cloud brightening that's disastrous because what you want is lots of big fluffy clouds that block the sun crap for sunbathing and good for keeping the world free from a climate apocalypse um, but in the polar night when the sun is completely absent for you know months of the year depending on which part of the polar region you're in then stripping those clouds out will mean that you will always have a net cooling effect right that's what you're describing yeah okay um, I, I have just one other thing to say on that is yeah, it's actually it came out really quite recently uh, end of last year so Villanueva uh, it's quite uh, but just more broadly there's a there's a another point which is that Solar geoengineering in general doesn't have a direct radiative effect of the Arctic in the winter, right? Because there's no sunlight to reflect away. So while you do have some cooling effect in the winter, that's happening through other means. So there's maybe some inertia in the system from having more sea ice, for example, or maybe you're cooling by changing the heat transports up into the Arctic in winter. But you don't directly cool the Arctic in winter because there's no sunlight to reflect if you're doing solar geoengineering. But cirrus cloud thinning in the polar winter would have that direct cooling effect in the winter, right? And, and the winter is important. It's, it's, it's the part of the Arctic seasonal cycle that's having the most amplified warming. So we often talk about Arctic amplification well, of warming. Well, yeah, you'd expect that. And I think that people, people often forget this fact. So, I mean, there's this way that I think about climate that I've found to be pretty helpful. So if you imagine like a can of tuna, right? So it's got a flat top and a flat bottom and a relatively shallow depth to it, right? You can imagine the world as like a can of tuna orbiting the sun and it gets illuminated from the side so that the walls of the can of tuna heat up. But the when you surround it with this blanket of global warming gases, you're stopping the radiation going out. And the, the top and bottom of the can of tuna um, have a, a, a big insulating effect. And that's your kind of polar night effect that the global warming gases are preventing the radiation out from the earth from the poles. And, and that polar amplification that you're talking about in a, in a polar night, that, that, that helps people understand, I think, the dominance of that, that polar night effect. And so you're saying that in the wintertime, you're doing more to restore the climate by putting in some kind of outgoing radiation modification in the winter rather than having um, focusing on the summer where the heat, the heat input comes. You're, you're saying that that gives you a more natural restoration of the pre-industrial climate. Is that, is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think it's important to preface this with, with the fact that we don't know if service cloud thinning would work, right? We're never unsure about service cloud thinning in general. But I think it is true that if it were to work, it would be the only means of directly altering that radiative budget of the Arctic in winter. Um, and we know that under modeling of SAI, it does tend to be an under-restoration of the Arctic winter. Um, and, and that squashing of the seasonal cycle because we're more effectively pulling the summer than the winter. And so I think there is an interesting case to be made that perhaps in some hypothetical world where we were convinced that surge cloud thinning worked, um, in combination with SAI, plausibly that might get you to a closer uh, pre-industrial climate. But I'm very, well, I, I want to be very caveat that. I want to caveat that quite strongly because in my view, SAI is quite plausibly realistically 
um, effective, but we just don't know that for sure it's cloud spinning. Okay, well, that's really interesting. But just to relate that to something that you said earlier, is it not the case that any cloud thinning would be effective in the Arctic? And therefore, if we were to do marine cloud brightening done in a way that we design strip the clouds rather than brighten them, that could also potentially work. And it might be much easier to do that in a way which is viable rather than with, say, serious cloud thinning, which might be harder to do for various technological reasons. Yeah, I think that may be true. As far as I'm aware, there isn't really much literature on uh, that latter point, and especially in the logistics of the logistics of any kind of marine cloud brightening, or I guess thinning in the Arctic. There's almost nothing written on that in in, it, in particular for the, the polar case, and how how much more difficult it is to do that in the polar regions. Yeah, I mean, you've got the climatological differences in terms of you've got to seed the right clouds in the right places, but you've also got the technical and logistical differences of trying to work in what is doubtless a very difficult environment. So all of those things have to be considered. Madeline Hotelin actually spoke about the uh, the difference between the pumped, like a wind, the proposal is to put wind-powered pumps onto the ice that would then stir up the uh, water or pump up the water onto the surface of the ice and thicken, you create these like ice lenses as you're adding water to the top of the ice. And her work was to compare that with the ice um, adjustments from the ICE 911, the glass microspheres idea that you spoke about earlier. But my yeah. understanding is that you didn't consider the ice build-up idea, did you? You only consider the ice reflectivity idea. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we ruled out talking about the ice, ice build-up. I guess Arctic ice management, I guess, might be the term for that in general. So to do a pumping or spraying water on top of ice yeah. as a way to then let it freeze on the top or, or the way to essentially allow the lake heat, heat to at least to allow more, more freezing of sea ice. We didn't talk about that, no. Okay. Well, the reason I thought that was interesting is because the in the Hoteling podcast, she talked about her comparison of those two methods. And she said the ice pumping idea was a winter-focused technique, and it was therefore less effective because it's the summer where you have the biggest issues with ice loss and the resultant ice albedo feedback. So putting a lot of additional ice in the winter doesn't do much to help you with the climate, because the big amplifier in the Arctic is when you cool it and get ice albedo feedback, whereas you've actually made an opposite point that the warming effect is dominant in the winter and therefore to restore uh, a more pre-industrial type climate you might want to concentrate on your winter not your summer so two interesting papers two interesting people have come up with two different approaches so in your view is the ice albedo effect more important for you know humanity and the, the world as a whole or is the the restoration of the natural cycle more important because there are there are two very different approaches potentially with different benefits i mean maybe the seasonality of the arctic is extremely important for the global climate systems in a way that i haven't appreciated so it'd be great if you could explain why you think or don't think that seasonality is a big deal yeah that's a big and tough question i think let me start with the ice albedo feedback i think the ice albedo feedback is sometimes overstated in, in size. Uh, it's an important it's an important part of Arctic amplification of warming, uh, but it's not the dominant part. And it, my best guess, I think, is could contribute something like you know perhaps a tenth of a degree to global temperature if 
raise temperature by two or three degrees Celsius, something. Perhaps that's wrong and it might be more than that, but it's certainly not like, in my view, if you're doing stratospheric aerosol injection, doing it in order to gain a little helping hand from the ice albedo feedback is a slightly strange idea it, it, in my head at least. And I'm, perhaps you might imagine a world where people have some preference for having to do a little bit less SAI so that they can get a little bit more from feedback to the natural system and therefore preferentially try and cool the polar regions. But the quantitatively, I think that's a slightly strange way to think about it. Well, well there's, um, another, there's another way of looking at it, and that's from an ecology point of view. Um, the, the, uh, the polar bears, seals, um, narwhals, things like that, that, you know, they're quite, although they're, they're relatively new species in the Arctic compared to, say, the rainforest, they have a, a value, you know, an intrinsic value that that wildlife system has a value, but also, and this is, might be a slightly prejudicial way of looking at it, but people seem to really care about them. And in terms of motivating people to engage on the subject, then saying, well, look, you know, we're going to focus on ice albedo feedback because we don't want all the polar bears to drown, right? Yeah, in my view, that's the much stronger argument. And, and more so than just, obviously, there's a charismatic species argument, but clearly there's also you know, ecology of the seawater underneath that's very dependent on the, the heat fluxes across the surface that sea ice matters for. There's also people that live in the Arctic and need sea ice for their ways of life, right? So I think there were really strong arguments that all else being equal, it would be a good thing to save sea ice. And it's very depressing that we're losing sea ice really rapidly, right? And there's some stuff come out recently about how quickly we're expected to get to ice-free summers. And it's, it's quite disturbing to, to think about the fact that that's coming in, you know, by the time I hit, I'm hitting my late middle age. Um, but I, I'm, I'm personally, I think sometimes... I can we, assure you, by the time you get to middle, late middle age, you'll have a lot more to worry about than the Arctic. <laughs> I'm getting there myself. And uh, I have to say, the Arctic is not what I worry about on a daily basis. But no, I, guess, I get your point. Um, my last point there is just that I think sometimes I see people on Twitter, for example, sort of saying, we're going to lose the Arctic sea ice, and therefore we will have some apocalyptic level of warming that comes through as a feedback directly from that Arctic sea ice loss. And I think, and therefore, we ought to do geoengineering to save the sea ice. And I think that line of reasoning is, is faulty. Basically, that, that was the point I wanted to make. Yeah, that's John Nissen's. Uh, I saw John Nissen at a conference recently. And uh, John Nissen has um, done, he was part of the Arctic Methane Emergency Group, or I think a fairly pivotal person in, in that group. Not, not necessarily widely known or even that highly regarded, but has been a presence on the geoengineering scene for quite some time. And I kind of agree. I mean, I came to this field thinking that catastrophic methane release from permafrost was going to be a pretty dominant force in climate. And the more I've learned about it, the more I think these catastrophic releases are not necessarily either A, likely or B, uncontrollable. And if they are likely, they're not uncontrollable. You know, you have to have the combination of factors. I've done a bit of work on methane. I've done one of my first papers was about, and uh, one of my most recent papers, a large review, going through review at the moment, a review being reviewed. That's, we need more words in academia. shouldn't be describing reviews as being in review, kind of mm. silly. But um, what, what's your view on that? I appreciate it's not your area of study, but you might have a... Yeah, I mean, we have a section on permafrost in, in the paper, which does go into this a little bit. And actually, you should look out, and I know you know Gideon Titterman is, is personally, but he's working at the moment, I think, on some some... Uh, some content on tipping points and thinking in more detail. Yeah, he's a sort of professional doom is probably the best way of <laughs> describing him. 
So um, he works on cat, cat, global catastrophic risk. Now, yeah. I did, he did my, his first paper with me, so I'm very proud of that. Well, look out for paper on tipping points from him coming out in hopefully the mid to near future. But back to the topic. Um, on permafrost, I think you know, the, the, I don't want to speak as an expert because clearly I'm not an expert on permafrost, but the kind of central estimates puts significant amounts of emissions from permafrost under kind of medium term future emission scenarios. So it plausibly might reduce our emissions budgets by say 10% or something, but from losing permafrost carbon. And so we do look in some detail what the literature says about how SAI impacts those emissions. And, and broadly speaking, the answer is it, it seems to, we're a cooler world, you, you reduce those permafrost emissions. But to some extent, because we see some, in general, some residual Arctic warming under SAI scenarios, and in particular, because we have that residual warming in the winter, it does seem as that we lose, there is less permafrost under geoengineered scenarios at the same global mean temperature than under non-geoengineered scenarios. So let me just recap that. Because that's a, an essential point. So uh, what I think you've said is that if you keep the temperature down, then you don't have much polar amplification of global warming. But if you allow the temperature to rise and then correct it with stratospheric aerosol injection, because stratospheric aerosol injection is less effective correcting polar amplification of global warming than we would ideally like it to be, you end up with less polar permafrost than you would do in a world with an equivalent temperature that's what you've just explained is that is that right yeah and and in general that's quite a common theme across a lot of the aspects of polar climate we look at under global geoengineering scenarios um, on the permafrost one one final point is there is another complication which is that if you're interested in the land carbon feedback more broadly you don't just care about permafrost you're also going to care about actual primary productivity on the land and geoengineering worlds are kind of weird in that you raise the co2 but don't have the warming from that raised CO2. And so plants actually like CO2 in general. And so it, it, some of that lost permafrost under, so under an SAI world at a given temperature, some of that lost permafrost relative to a non-SAI world at that temperature might be compensated by having more plants in the high latitude. Yeah. Okay. But, this is but, it's, not, but it's not just high latitude, it's, it's globally. And I, I touched on a very important point that I'd like to break down there. So there's this effect of solar geoengineering on carbon cycle feedback. So there's a number of processes come into play in this. So I think it's important to go back to basics and we always try to do that on a podcast because people understand the issue. So my understanding is there's several effects that make a difference with the soil carbon, with the land carbon feedback. So first you've got a soil carbon feedback where the partial pressure of the CO2 in the pore water in the soils is higher and therefore energetically decomposition is not favored in the same way that it would be if you had no co2 in the environment so it just directly chemically inhibits the decomposition so you tend to build up more leaf litter in and, and a similar soil organic carbon as a result of not being able to break down the material in the soil quite as fast because the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is kind of pushing back at you the other effect is that you've got a direct fertilization effect because the plants directly need the CO2. And so if you've got a plant that is in the shade or whatever, and it's you know, just struggling to survive, having that little bit of extra CO2 gives it a better Tuesday than it might otherwise have. But there's a wider and perhaps more important feedback overall in that your high level of CO2 means the plants don't need to open their stomata as much. They're kind of what you might kind of think of as their mouths to breathe. And therefore, you don't 
have as much water evaporating from the surface, the bottom surface of the leaf. And as a result of not having that evaporation from the bottom surface of the leaf, the plants can survive in areas that are a lot drier than they might otherwise be able to survive in. And so you have quite a significant effect where plants just, uh, it's called global greening, I think, where plants just don't require as much water, even though the temperature is held down. Now, that's not an SAI effect specifically, but it's an SAI plus warming versus no SAI, no warming world, right? That, is that, do I understand that correctly? I think you probably know more about those effects than I do, to be honest. Yeah, broadly, that, that aligns with my understanding of it. And I should say that, obviously, these are big and uncertain questions. And in our review, we really restrict ourselves to just thinking about permafrost in the high-latitude regions, what the impact of SCI is in terms of changes in temperature and also a little bit in terms of changes in hydrology that are expected in the modelling of SAI. Okay, so uh, when you've got your kind of tag team wrestling fight going on, where all these different techniques fight it out amongst them, what kind of combinations or uh, what processes did you find were you know, most successful, most dominant? What, what did you think was a good way of solving the problem? So we don't make recommendations about solving the problem. And I think even that framing is already assuming quite a lot in terms of what the aim might be and, and who might be thinking about this. I, I think we're thinking a bit a step for that, I guess, in terms of you know, what, is the, what is the expected climate impact of different techniques? That's the question we set out to answer rather than assuming a goal and, and how would we get to that goal. And I think key point really comes out in our research is that with global SAI, we do expect some undercooling of the poles. And along with that, there's some under-restoration of, of various aspects of polar climate. Um, and by undercooling and under-restoration, what I mean is relative to a world without SAI at that same global mean temperature. So, so SAI is having a stronger effect on the global mean temperature than it is on certain aspects of polar climate, like the sea ice extent or um, the polar temperature. And the reason for that is, is kind of multifaceted. There's kind of a simple fact, which is that often we're having greater aerosol distribution, we're having greater aerosol optical depth in the equatorial regions. There's also the fact that there's more sunlight in the equatorial regions to reflect away. But there's also some more nuanced effects do with the stratospheric dynamics affecting the circulation and pushing certain kind of circulation patterns and also to could you unpack that a bit yeah so it's quite an, this is an interesting for me at least aspect of, of the science is that some fairly strong evidence i think that if you have lots of uh if you have sai with with a strong with a distribution that peaks in the in the low latitudes you end up having lots of warming of the tropical lower stratosphere um, because those aerosols also absorb infrared uh, long-wave radiation, as well as scattering the short-wave radiation. So essentially, as a side effect of SAI, if we use sulfates, certainly, we expect to have warming of the stratosphere. And that generates a kind of gradient in the stratosphere that you, you're increasing the equator to pole temperature gradient in the stratosphere. And that temperature gradient is, is super important for setting the kind of large-scale dynamics of the mid-latitude circulation, in particular things like the strength of the polar jets and the position of the polar vortex. And the argument that's made in the literature and that several models have produced is, is that by having this warming of the um, tropical lower stratosphere, you're inducing an atmosphere, atmospheric state which has a kind of strengthened polar vortex and something and a tropospheric circulation which is more akin to a positive North Atlantic oscillation. I'm throwing out jargon here, so do yeah, stop I, me. I, I, well, I'm going I'm to try and break this down because I, I kind of get what you're saying, but I, I know I need 
will help to understand this. So I've seen a lot of temperature plots of the Earth where you have this kind of big warm blob over the equator in solar geoengineering. And I think that's yes. what, what you're saying is that those particles are not fully transparent, particularly to infrared. They catch yes. the sun. They, they directly get hot. And then because they're tiny, they uh, move a lot of heat by conduction into the air around them. So you have this large air mass containing the particles and that air mass gets heated up and then will move upwards by convection. And the Brewer-Dobson is a single cell convection process that rises. You have the rising leg of the Brewer-Dobson circulation in the equatorial regions. And unlike in the troposphere, which has got multiple cells between the equator and the pole, in the stratosphere, you've got a single cell. So you have a rising leg in, in the equatorial regions, and then you've got a falling leg in the polar regions. And what you're saying is that that additional warming lift, like a kind of boiling pan of peas, if you imagine a very big flat pan of peas with, a, um, with boiling water in it uh, over a tiny burner, and you'd have this rising column of peas in the water rising in the middle of the pan and then going all the way out to the edges of the pan where it would cool down by conduction with the cooler air and then fall down. And that's kind of similar process to what you'll get. But it's instead of being at the centre of the pan of peas, it's the equator and then you're going to the, the poles. So it's almost like an opposite effect, in fact. But what the, the, the bit I don't understand, um, because my dynamics is rubbish, is you talked about a couple of other things. So you've got the, the polar jet. Now, that's the jet stream, as far as I understand it. There's like a kind of wiggly, it's like a flower shape that goes around the uh, uh, the pole. Uh, if you're looking down on the pole, you've got a kind of flower pattern with petals with a jet stream, wriggles and wiggles. And one of the things that we notice from climate change in the modern world is that we tend to have a much more stable uh, jet or the uh, jet stream I think it's itself less stable, but it causes regions of temporary stability, which give us these periods of extreme weather. So you, where you get snow in Texas, where you got that snow bomb that took the Texas power grid down, and you have extreme high pressure and high temperature over regions like Britain, where we had 40 degrees heat and pervasive wildfires that were destroying like entire city neighbourhoods last year. And that's related to the jet stream processes that you're describing there. So in terms of human climate impacts, what you're describing is a really, really important process. So I, I really want you to try and unpack that as best you can. Yes, I think so. What you said is broadly accurate. I think the, the, the last part about the influence of jet on extreme weather under climate change, I think it's important to say that the projections for this are super uncertain. And, and there's a lot of debate inside the community around how to interpret recent trends and the statistical significance of those trends in terms of and, and how to project that forwards in terms of position of jet and jet waviness in terms of jet influence on the weather we experience, for example, in Europe. But the, the story that you 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 just detailed is, is certainly a common one that gets re referenced to and, and, and does exist in the literature. But I think there is there's argument over its its truth. Um, but more coming back to what I was saying, that there's um, several models have produced a pattern of a strengthened polar jet and, and a more positive NAO, which is North Atlantic Constellation, is, is a kind of description of a sort of sloshing backwards and forwards of the large air mass over the North Atlantic. Defining okay, so, some so the pressure let's just stick, between the pole let's and stick with the polar jet, if I may. I'm very interested in the NAO, but polar jet, because it's a really important thing and I want people to understand it. And when I say people, I mean me. So 
you're saying that stratospheric aerosol injection potentially strengthens the polar jet. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So the, and, the, and the strength, the strengthening. Let, let's try and clarify what we mean by strengthening. So at the moment, we've got a, a polar jet which is becoming on a on on a longer term basis is becoming less stable. So it, it's prone to sort of kinking and wriggling much more than it might otherwise do. But the perception that we get of the weather from that effect is one of increased, not reduced stability. So in the short term, you have these blocking events where you get stuck in high or low pressure weather in the mid latitudes because of the changes to the jet stream. So the jet stream is becoming less stable on a long term climatological basis, but that gives us meteorologically more stable weather at the moment. And you're saying this is completely new to me, never covered this on the podcast, so I didn't, never heard of it before. But what you're saying is that the, there's a potential that solar geoengineering might be able to act to restore the, the strength of polar jets. So it becomes more robust I, and more like it would be in the normal climate. Is that correct? No, I, I want to push back on that. I don't think that is there in the modelling. I don't think we know that in that much. I, I think that's, that's an over-interpretation of what I'm saying. Um, I think the first point is we, we, we simply don't know in any great detail what will happen to the jet streams on warming without SAI. It's a very active research topic. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert on that, but the, that's, that's the consensus view that I seem to, to get. Under SAI, there has been modelled a, a strengthening and be a poleward shift of, of the jets uh, to do with the stratospheric heating. But, and, and another important but, is that that's likely dependent on the latitude of your injection and, and also likely is, is somewhat model dependent too. So I just think we shouldn't over-egg any of this in terms of how confident we are in it. Okay, so it's a possible effect, not a certain effect, right? Yeah, and, and um, a possible effect which, which is likely is dependent on your injection strategy as well. Okay, so talk me through how the injection strategy might affect the outcomes. Well, this, again, is, there's not really much in the way of literature on this, but it, it, the causal mechanism that's, that's described is that you have this heating in the tropical lower stratosphere, and that, that then is affecting the temperature gradient across the stratosphere from the equator to pole. And so plausibly, if your aerosols are in different places, that temperature gradient would be affected in different ways. So particularly if you had all the aerosols near the pole, then you would have that heating away from the tropical stratosphere and towards the stratosphere. Okay, but that, that's really interesting. So your description there is that the, dis, the, the convective disruption is going to be less if we more evenly distribute our aerosols in the stratosphere. But you've also described how it's, it's possible that a strengthening of the polar jet might occur if we have a injection regime which is more dis, more induces more convection so i think the other thing that's important i think the strengthening is, isn't the main point the main point is around shifting the location as well so, so a poleward shift and the impact this is having which can't really be separated but the, the impact this is having on general tropospheric circulation so the argument that's made is that in both hemispheres actually there's a shift towards a somewhat displaced tropical circulation so a shift towards a more positive nao and in the southern hemisphere a more positive southern annular mode and that those are having impacts on the circulation that matter. So in the Southern Hemisphere, there's the argument that it made that this might have impacts on sea ice and, and actually under-restore the sea ice under SCI as a result of these circulation changes. And in the Northern Hemisphere, there's potentially quite large impacts on weather patterns in Europe, for example. Um, 
I mean, Jones in the Met Office has a really good paper on this, which shows some quite... Start with who's in the Met Office? Andy Jones working with Jim Hayward and, and a few others have yeah. a paper from, I think, 2020, maybe? Yeah, 20, uh, 2021, actually. It was published, um, which shows some really quite stark rainfall changes uh, across, in particular, like um, Portugal and parts of, the, of Southern oh, Europe. Right. I think one of the, one of the starkest um, displays of the fact that this, these potential circulation changes could be really important how we think about SAI. And, and, uh, and this is, I, I think it's fair to say, a feature of, a known feature of SAI with strongly equatorial injection. I think it's unknown to what extent this changes if you change that inj injection pattern. Um, okay, Let, let's recap that because that's central and it's kind of new to me. So what you're saying, the, talk, talk me through the Portuguese effect because the, I, I chatted to Jim Hayward about that and I challenged him on it. And he said it's actually, you know, a very robust effect. It's not, it's not overcome by local weather effects. It really is a dominant local effect. So you're, you're saying about the rainfall pattern. So the, the changes to the convective uh, influence on the stratosphere, how does that influence the Portuguese weather? I think it's difficult to describe these kind of things in, in words more broadly, right? It, the, the argument is that we see a essentially you're kind of sloshing more of your air. Um, you've got to kind of think of the, these jet effects and the NAO effects all kind of in, in, together in, in one thing. And broadly speaking, what we're describing is kind of positive shift, a positive displacement of the jet stream polewards and simultaneously a kind of sloshing of more air. So, so under SAI, you're pushing jet stream poleward. So the, the, the ring of fast air that goes around the pole, the airliners try to catch when they fly to from London to New York, that's going to shift poleward under SAI, right? Um, that's, 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 yes. So you're, you're kind of, and simultaneously, smaller, right? If you look yes. down on the pole, you and, see a And simultaneously, we're seeing a more positive phase of the North Atlantic Oscillation. Okay, so the North Atlantic Oscillation, you've mentioned this a lot, and I was hoping to try and get to the bottom of the um, polar jet first, but it's, they seem to be so intrinsically linked that I can't separate them out. So talk me through what what happens when you've got the north atlantic oscillation and it's positive or negative phase because i couldn't explain that to somebody if they asked me yeah so it's i mean it's the actual definition of this is, is a kind of it's the first or it's the statistical pattern in space that describes the largest sink it's the, it's the first empirical orthogonal function is, is the mathematical description so it's, which means that it's it's a spatial pattern that explains a large amount of the variability in the atmospheric circulation in the northern hemisphere the atlantic so just just give me that mathematical definition so, again an empirical orthogonal function an eof i've never heard of those and you might not be able to cover that in sufficient depth to get us to understand it but like oh, i always like to know areas of knowledge that that are kind of out there that i'll never be able to wrap my head around so so it's it's a form of kind of principal component analysis if that's maybe the, the term that's more common so broadly speaking you have some data and, and then you try and basically if, if you imagine asking it's a bit like if you imagine getting software to compress a, a video file or something if you, if you ask yeah. if you want to compress a file down to some less information so you're doing a fast Fourier transform which works like it's a frequency analysis so it's like it works like your ear works right so your ear hears bass and it hears treble but it doesn't hear the displacement of the speaker cone right so you see the speaker cone wobbling back and forward and your, your ear is entirely unaware of the position of the speaker cone at any one point. What you're doing is you're able to disassemble the movement of the 
speaker cone into its component frequencies. And so what you're talking about is the mathematical process by which this happens rather than the mechanical tuning forks that exist in your ears. And you're, you're describing like a, a Fourier transform-like effect where you're trying to find out what is driving the system by looking at the frequencies that are occurring within that system, right? Is that broadly what you're describing? I think that's maybe. I'd say it's slightly different. Imagine you wanted to like tell me the current state of the atmosphere in as few numbers as possible. One way you might do that is to say, okay, well, the El Nino is, is strength four and the NAO is strength five. And, and this is, the, obviously you wouldn't get all of the atmospheric state if you did that. But the way we, this mathematical thing works is that it's a particular characteristic of the atmosphere that would contain quite a bit of the information for the current state of the atmosphere. That's, that's the idea, essentially. So sort of a, su- a summarizing function. Like, essentially, like a, a the spatial fun- function, which allows yeah. you to summarize in as little information as possible, but as much of the variability atmosphere as possible. And that's what the EOS, the, the mathematical tool gives you. It produces a kind of spatial pattern that if you know that space, if you know the strength of that spatial pattern, you know quite a bit about the atmosphere, even if you don't know everything. And you could, you could generate a list of those. And if you generated an infinite list of those, you would know everything about the atmosphere. But if you just take the first five components, say you'd know a fair bit. It's a bit like when you do like a series expansion in maths and when you do like a, a, a Taylor expansion of a series, for example, you, you start with, uh, you, you build up additional terms that cons- cons- each one explains a bit less of the uh, other thing you're trying to generate an approximation for. Yeah, uh, but the, but the music kind of analogy isn't, officially. the music analysis, analysis isn't wholly inaccurate, is it? I mean, if you were listening to a piece of music, you think, ah, oh, there's the drums, there's the bass, right? And what you might say, well, look, you, they're, they're, you don't need to describe that there's an absence of piano or, you know, there's no tambourine. You know, what you're saying is that this particular piece of music is you know, composed of a lead guitar, bass guitar and drums, and then the rest of it is, is less significant. So it's not our, it's, the analogy that I gave you isn't, isn't wholly misleading, is it? No, I think, I, yeah, uh, I'm not sure I completely understood it, but I, I believe you that it, it works. Okay. So then the NAO, you were going to explain a bit more about how this sort of water-based sloshing works. So how, what's the positive, you've got the, the S, is it the SAM, which is the Southern equivalent? Is that correct? Or do I misunderstand? Yeah, it's all that, um, there's lots of uh, acronyms thrown about, but the SAM is a Southern annular mode. There's also a Northern annular mode, an NAM, which has a lot in common with the NAO. People argue about to what extent that they kind of operate independently. Um, but annular here doesn't mean annual as in year, it means annular as in like a ring. Uh, so it's, the reason it's called the Southern annular mode is because it's broadly ring-shaped. So if, you, if we go back to me talking about these kind of statistical shapes that, that might summarize part of the variability, the annular mode here is essentially a, a, a zonally symmetric shape. It's, it's broadly like a ring shape, and it, it's describing the kind of large-scale movement of air towards or away from the pole. And, and the same so if you're true. looking, so if you're looking down on the pole, if you're kind of flying in an airline and you're right over the North Pole, then you, you'd see ringed, and the ring would be doing what? Is it a ring of temperature? Is it a ring of air movement? What's what is it? So here I'm talking about literally air, so pre- pressure of air, or, or you can imagine maybe the height of a particular pressure contour. Yeah, and and importantly for the NAO, that that's it's not zonally symmetric, right? Because we're pulling out just the Atlantic sector, but for the SAM, the southern annular mode, that is a zonally symmetric. So you can imagine it being a kind of ring that's essentially expanding and contracting onto the pole, which is defining essentially a so large is that, scale. Is that a ring of high pressure 
or a ring of low pressure? Uh, you, it's, it's a polar low pressure and a high pressure at the somewhere away from the pole. But the strength of that differential is what's changing over time, right? As you're sloshing the air back and forth. Okay. So you've got a kind of, uh, so you, you imagine like a, like a bathtub, right? So you imagine a child sliding around in the bath and moving the water from one end of the bath to the other. And eventually it spills out over the top of the bath and they get showered out. If your child was, was anything similar to mine, probably my, yeah. one of my first and, in, introductions to oscillations. And in general, you can go back to, historically, the reason we sort of talk about these particular things is because it was just observed. There were these anti-correlations, which are surprising at large distances between air pressure in different places. So that the ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, is a similar effect, which is actually, rather than being north-south, it's more like east-west. But again, it was to do with just noticing that pressure changed kind of seemingly spookily went up in one place and down in another at, at large distances across the planet. And that's the same thing that's happening with the NAO. If you sort of compare the pressure in the Azores or like, you know, somewhere in the more equatorial Atlantic to the pressure in, say, Iceland, you get this contrast in the way they're changing. And that's what's sort of driving the, the initial definition of these features of the atmosphere. Okay. To clarify, I just want to sort of get my head around the idea. So with this, if you kind of think about a sort of child sloshing around in a bath, the process that you're describing is similar on a on a kind of north-south axis, right? So you you would have a sloshing of air from a low from a lower pressure region to a higher pressure region and then back again. And that operates on what kind of period what's the period periodicity of that? I think it's biennial, isn't it? Is that correct? Don't know about biennial. Um I think the periodicity is Oh, I'm getting it confused with the QBO. My apologies. Yeah, that's that's um, as far as I'm aware, that's the only biennial oscillation. That, yeah. The so the, 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 um, so just to just to take a side detour there, the cube quasi biennial oscillation is a change in the east-west flows of the stratosphere at a different level. So some years you've got an east-west flow in lower altitudes, and then a west-east flow in higher altitudes, and in other years it flips around, and that oscillates biennially but what's the what's the periodicity of the north atlantic oscillation i don't know and i'm not sure how strongly periodic periodic it is right but like for example if it's if it's low pressure towards the south and high pressure to the north on wednesday would it have changed by thursday or or is it something that changes you know roughly kind of annually or what I think it's one of these ones where a little bit like ENSO, you have sort of longer time series where you longer time periods in which you have on average a positive or a negative. But I'm unsure of what the periodic periodicity is. Okay. Well, no worries. You can't know everything. Well, fine. I mean, look, the reason I'm going on about all of this stuff is because I know very little about it and I find it very interesting. So I'm very pleased that you've given us a bit of an, uh, an introduction to these dynamics effects. I mean, I've, Personally, I find it you know one of the most useful aspects of coming on doing hosting these podcasts is I get to speak to people who can explain all these things I've kind of heard in passing, but I've no real understanding of the mechanisms behind them. Um, talking about mechanisms, does the um, does the um, DNAO you're saying it strengthens in SRM or or does it weaken in SRM? I think strengthens isn't isn't quite the, the right word. It becomes more positive. So it's defined in terms of like a, a positive or negative index where positive is a heightened pressure differential between the two ends in the, in the north and south. Uh, whereas I think strengthened might imply something different like the 
you might imagine the strength and speed is the amplitude of the oscillations is larger, which, which isn't what I'm saying. Okay, so it's not that it, that it doesn't become more wobbly, it goes more towards one end of the wobble. Exactly, that's, that's the argument that's made, yeah. Right, okay, that's good. I think I understand now. So, um, and, right, you drifted quite far from your paper, but nevertheless... Yeah, I should say, maybe just coming back to the paper, what, as well as these kind of important weather effects in Europe that might be associated with this NAO shift, there's also an interesting effect, which is that that, that shift, and it has been observed to some extent under volcanic eruptions in the past too, but this line of argument is also associated with a warming of the wintertime northern Eurasian continent. So a kind of, is coming out of some of the models and, and to some extent in observed organic eruptions too, is that this sort of chain of cause, causal chain is, is arriving at a wintertime feature where you actually have some, you're driving some warming of the Eurasian high latitude continent. Well, this is really interesting. So what, let, let me just sort of take a step back here. So as far as I'm aware, this is one of the only consistent warming effects that arises from SAI, right? So let, let's break this down. So when you're talking about Northern Eurasia, it's, it's a bit of a kind of strange way of talking about places. So yeah. you, you've got woodies in Northern Eurasia. Who lives there? I mean, we're talking, you know, Moscow, Vladivostok. Uh, Finland, what you know, what, what what's Northern Eurasia? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you can imagine it more if you if you imagine looking down on the North Pole, it's essentially the eastern side of that plot, right? There's a kind of bi bimodal two blobs. Siberia, roughly. Yeah, so it's 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 that side of the Arctic, right? Um, okay, and and how important is that? I mean, it, it's a very very sparsely populated region, right? Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of permafrost, so that that's one reason you might. Yeah, I mean, it's useful for its and global ecological value but it's obviously there are lots of there are indigenous groups of people living there but i guess thinking just in terms of the climate effects i think it's a relatively large area of land with permafrost underneath it and yeah i'm just trying to think how far down the, the warming effect goes in terms of countries i'm not sure i can work out on my head exactly where that would sit in some cities but, but you're, you're basically talking about you know the desolate eastern part of russia is fundamentally where you're talking about right She's from northern so, Scandinavia too, I think, and, and places like you're saying that that is noted on the Baltic coast. In... Yes, so 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 the, what we're saying the is that models um, have shown a kind of warm patch there. Essentially, this is being driven by circulation effects. On that, so. Okay, and how does that how does that work? So this is this is fascinating. So we'll just recap the importance of this. So this is one of the few places in the world that actually gets warmer under you know a significant at least subset of SAI interventions and how does that warming effect actually occur yeah i should say that i think in some models it doesn't get absolutely warmer in some models it, it it's strongest if you're just looking at the difference between you really see okay. this warming so if it's, you're it's cooled less yeah i think maybe that in some models you actually do get an absolute warming but i think it, it just in the winter months but i think in general you just get less cooling um okay if, relative to and how is that how exactly you know, your high greenhouse gas scenario yeah, I mean, I think it's, again, it's kind of difficult to describe in words, but broadly speaking, you're having this pattern of circulation that's pushing warmer air into those regions. Okay. Um, so back to your paper, we've done a detour around much of stratospheric dynamics, which is very useful and most welcome, but we do want to make sure that you've got time to go through what your paper shows us. So um, what you said that you, it doesn't tell you like the best approach but it but it gives information on how they compare but when i asked that question i was hoping that you might have a personal opinion about what it tells us that we might learn or do about sai 
and, and other methods that, that might guide us to a, a sustainable solution that you know, uses our technology in the best available manner. So what do you think it tells us that we normatively we should and shouldn't do? What lessons for policymakers is your research? Yeah, I think I can offer a couple of personal opinions. I think one opinion is that we shouldn't think of polar geoengineering as being a local. We shouldn't really think about local polar geoengineering as being truly local. We should think about it in the context of global geoengineering. I think one thing that comes out quite strongly of, of the literature is that if you're trying to just restore the Arctic nowhere else, you have to imagine very large interventions to achieve that. And that's kind of why we come up with generally saying that things like Arctic sea ice albino modification don't look that promising. It's because if that effect is restricted to only the Arctic, you need a really strong turning down of the sun, essentially, or really strong radiative perturbation to hold the Arctic in its present state under future warming. Um, because, and, and partly because, the, these are regions where the incoming sunlight is not all of the energy budget. Right? The energy budget is largely or a significant fraction, perhaps half the energy budget, is heat coming into the Arctic from the south in both the atmosphere and the ocean. That's set you, sensible heat transport you're talking about there, right? So it's, it's, it's not, is that latent heat where it's like evaporation of water or is it sensible heat in terms of you can physically feel, feel the temperature difference? I think it's a bit of both. There's, there's latent heat transport too. There's also some stuff in the ocean as well, transporting heat northwards. It's like AMOC as well do part of that, but... That's uh, the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, or, you know, yeah. it's colloquially, it, it's not strictly the Gulf Stream, but it's closely related to the Gulf Stream, right? Yeah, so the Gulf Stream is in the atmosphere, whereas the AMOC is, is in the water. Um, and they're, they're, but, but AMOC describes this big sort of ocean conveyor belt of, of, of water that happens across the Atlantic. But yeah, so to just coming back to my point, that if you imagine just trying to hold the Arctic in its current state while we have, say, RCJ 8.5 or, or some high warming scenario. It's actually very, very difficult to achieve that with local geoengineering, in my view, because sunlight is not all of the energy budget in the Arctic. And if you try to cool the Arctic and not the rest of the world, then there's actually more heat flux into the Arctic because you've trying to hold this one spot cold while the rest of the world gets warm. And you have these compensatory heat fluxes that come in and you end up with additional heat fluxes to try because the Earth tries to fill in that cold okay. spot. So, essentially. so it'd be like trying to just just keep your sofa warm, like in the winter, if you might have a fan heater pointing at your feet while you're on the sofa, it doesn't all go into you. A lot of it goes up the other end of the living room and then out the window, right? It's a sort of yeah, similar um, effect. And, and another thing that's, I think, related to this point that I'm making is that when we model polar injection of, of stratospheric aerosol injection, we also don't see a local effect truly we see we see effect that basically goes over most of the hemisphere that you inject it partly because the aerosols literally just spread southwards I and mean, if, if generally when people inject say 60 degree north in the models you're seeing large aerosolical depths right down to the tropics in that hemisphere because we often think in the literature there's often a kind of suggestion that in the sort of colloquial discussions of this we often think okay the aerosols move poleward and, and that's broadly the case and that's what the brewer dobson circulation in its kind of mean state is doing it's pushing aerosols forward but actually there's lots of transport southward too from high northern latitude and there's actually some they also that physically fall down don't they as well right so the aerosols will will precipitate from the poleward uh, arm of the brewer dobson circulation down to the the equatorially directed arm so as they fall out from the top layer, they fall down into the bottom layer, and the bottom layer is going the opposite direction. So they end up moving towards the equator, right? Yeah, I think that's that's yeah. And and models do disagree somewhat about what the stratospheric 
circulation does, but to these aerosols. But broadly speaking, there is, seems to be reasonably strong agreement between the models and also with some observations that the aerosol depth field that you create with fairly high latitude injection is certainly not restricted to the, to the Arctic or the, or the polar regions. And you're getting, if you imagine a world, say, where you're injecting at 60 degrees north and south, um, that world will have cooling all over the world, essentially, right down to the tropics in both hemispheres. Um, and so I just think, although you could, that's a world with preferentially or stronger degree of polar cooling unit of global cooling, and that might be advantageous. We could talk about that potentially. Um, you certainly shouldn't think about these scenarios as being Arctic or Antarctic geoengineering scenarios. They're, they're, they're global geoengineering scenarios. And I think that that's a, you know, when we think about, you know, could you use SAI to save the sea ice? Well, you could use SAI to cool the planet and therefore also save the sea ice. But I think if there's one point from our paper that I'd like to emphasize is that you can't just save the sea ice. You have to cool the planet, essentially. That's, that's what these geoengineering techniques could, could give you. And the extent to which that might be overcomable with more localized techniques. So we look a bit at marine cloud brightening as being something that has a more local effect. The evidence seems to be that, again, you would have to do a very large radiative forcing to restore polar climate without doing something globally. And you would have to think quite carefully about how that impacts the other regions of, of the world, especially if, if you're doing it in such a localized way. Okay, but let's imagine that we are very focused on sea ice for, say, ecological reasons. Are you saying that it's either impossible or impractical or unaffordable to modify the Arctic alone to the point where we can retain sea ice? Or are you saying that it's just not an efficient use of solar geoengineering? Um, both, to some extent. I think on the former point, we, we do argue that actually sea ice albino modification in a pan-Arctic or pan-Antarctic way looks impractical. If you just do the kind of back of the envelope calculations for you know, how many beads we're imagining, it's, it's really quite stark. At least in my view, that this doesn't seem like a cost-effective means, it, as in it seems likely to be more cost-effective. Uh, the essential argument for geoengineering right, is that thing, it has to be more cost-effective than emissions mitigation for it to make sense as a thing to do broadly. Um, and, well, and I would say not I very much take but, issue with that. I mean, it's, it's, much, I mean, it's much more comparable to CDR. And it's also about speed of effect as well. But let me get, let me give you a counterpoint because I think what you're doing here overall is you're you're taking a very sort of physics-based approach to this, which is you know not unreasonable. That's your academic and intellectual background. But let me give you a, a kind of a sort of scenario where people might say in future, you know, we, we really hate the idea of SAI. We like we really 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 hate it. We really don't want to use it any more than we have to. We also don't care about money. We've got loads of money. Climate change is doing a huge amount of damage, and what we want to do is have a kind of no expense spared approach to doing as little solar geoengineering as possible. One area of the world we know that we can't fix without solar geoengineering is the Arctic. It's melting, all the polar bears are dying, we've got loads of money and we want to fix it. In a situation like that, where those are the priorities, not mass efficiency, not cost, um, but minimising the effect on the rest of the climate system and maximising the saving of the Arctic, in a situation like that, does polar geoengineering become plausible from either a physics or engineering point of view or are you just really butting up against real physical limits of how you know how much geoengineering you can do without you know risking things like gross climate destabilization or do you just get to the point where you know there's just the energy budget you just can't close the energy budget enough to save the sea ice because your warming is, has, has become overwhelming what kind of polar geoengineering do you mean in the sense are you talking about sai with high latitude injection 
Well, I mean, you've got you've got a choice. I mean, like you were talking about polar micro glass beads. So that might be one to talk about, but you can also talk about the kind of Visioni type injection scenarios that people have considered. Yeah, I think if it's if 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 the question is around high latitude injection, I, I completely see that as a plausible scenario. I think in, in that world, you'd have to remember that if you were asking to do as little geoengineering as possible, depends what you mean by that. If you meant as little injection in mass terms, you probably would want to not do it in high latitudes, but do it at the equator if, if you were trying to minimize. Injection. No, what I mean is that people cooling. would want... But if what, you wanted to be what, away from people as far as possible, for example, then, then yes, doing it at high latitudes might be... You might have less sulfate burden per capita in terms of the, the amount of sulfate falling on people. Uh, and But I think the one thing we talk about a little bit in the paper, and I think is an important point to consider, is that the, the argument for doing it at, say, 60 north-south might, in my view, much more plausibly be that the climate outcomes globally look better than the climate outcomes globally of doing it lower latitude. And I'm not saying that's true, but that would be the argument I think you have to make because there would be climate outcomes globally from doing that. And you have to think about it. Uh, so and, if and you so, did it, if you did it at 60 north and 60 south, so you're, that's your polar latitude. I mean, 60 is not that high, but it's high-ish, right? You could do it, say, yeah. 85. But yeah. you're describing a, a, a like a, so where, where is 60 i mean i think we're about 55 in london aren't we so the 60 would be sort of like from the north of scotland upwards right is that roughly right yeah i think that's probably about right i mean the, the reason for 60 is there's a couple of aspects of that one is just that the models tend to suggest that doing it at 60 gives you what looks like a pretty polar aerosol, aerosol distribution so you, we have a figure that shows that in the, in the paper but you in general when when 60 degrees is injected in the models you get something that kind of is you can imagine it a bit like a sort of cosine function that stops at the peak at 90 degrees in terms of the aerosol. So you, it, as, a, as a kind of convenient choice, it's, it's an injection latitude that appears to give you quite a, a polar-focused distribution it, as, as in a way that I think of as kind of the inverse of the equatorial injection, which tends to give you this sort of uh, something a bit like a, a peak at the equator, then tailing off to a kind of constant as you get closer to the poles. The other reason to think about 60 injection, I think, and, and there's a Wakesmith paper that talks about the logistics of high latitude injection for, uh, for SAI. And actually, the logistics of high latitude southern hemisphere injection could plausibly be quite difficult because you run out of land in the southern hemisphere, say like 55 degrees south. So, following Antarctica, there's actually not a lot of available high latitude land in the southern hemisphere. Now, whether or not there's ways of getting around that, perhaps there are. But um, at least one paper has kind of argued that they choose something like 55 south as their like maximum. Uh, logistically simple injection location in the southern hemisphere okay so um, let, let's re, let's let's unpack that because that's an important point right so what you're saying is that you don't want to be flying a long way with a payload what you want to be doing is flying short distance get up as high as you can and release it and one of the advantages of releasing it near to the poles is that the tropopause the the boundary between the troposphere and the stratosphere is significantly lower and that's not just about you know saving a bit of time flying the air is much thicker uh, when you're just a few kilometers lower, and it makes it possible for you to use a much wider variety of aircraft, including many that extant aircraft like the KC-135 Stratotanker or a modern reimagining of it, as opposed to something much more fancy pants like the SR-71 Blackbird, which can fly you know, very high into the stratosphere, but is a much smaller aircraft, can't carry much, much more expensive, much more dangerous to fly, much harder to operate 
And by having air bases at 55 rather than 60, you can basically fly not vertically up because planes don't go vertically. You can ascend without having to do a traverse before you then release your payload and then come back down to your airport, right? That's the that's the fundamental logic that you're describing there for launching at 55, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I'm not going to try to give an opinion on whether or not those logistical implications are insurmountable, but that's, that's the argument is that logistics are easier to imagine, but not going that far in some hemisphere. That's how. Um, okay. So and, 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 it, it, sorry, go on. Yeah. In a, in a world where, where you wanted to have as many people as possible having no or as little solar engineering as possible, you're saying at least plausible to have a situation where you've got dominance of SAI at the pole where you're trying to preserve the Arctic, but you it would be potentially disadvantages disadvantageous to global circulation. It wouldn't be mass efficient in terms of getting as much radiative forcing for your money as you might like. And you would, you know, therefore urge caution about a strategy which was a kind of a magic wand to save the Arctic. You suggest that it's a bit more complicated than people might think it to be. Well, my, my point would be that that world would still be a world where the whole world is having solar geoengineering. I think that's that's the key point, is that you, and in that world, my view at least, is that as soon as you have a world where the whole world is under solar geoengineering, you would have to do something more sophisticated around trying to get the best, the optimum injection regime, right? And, and thinking about doing it at multiple latitudes and trying to control as far as possible the impacts on things like atmospheric circulation. And so that's why I don't see that as being a particularly plausible scenario, because although I think it's sometimes been thought about as, oh, if we did it at 60 North, that's not over many people. And so we wouldn't be exposing many people to solar geoengineering. I think that's, that's not really the case in that there would still be significant cooling over essentially all populated regions. And there would certainly be significant effects on weather and atmospheric circulation on all of the globe if you did large forcing through injection in the high latitudes. Okay. In terms of the combination of, of, of effects, so you're describing it a situation where you can't isolate stratospheric aerosol injection into the Arctic. And I think probably most people would intuitively understand that to be the case because people understand that the weather is connected and you know the air masses move around and you can't keep things in one place in, a, in an open system, right? It's not like there's a big tank in which the Arctic exists and it's not connected to the rest of the world. That's just not how it exists. So but I think um, it's under- more than just the actual flow of the aerosols itself, you can't isolate it because any large enough cooling, any large enough like reflection of sunlight constrained to say just the Arctic to have a big impact on the Arctic would also be large enough to have a big impact on the entire northern hemisphere atmospheric circulation. That's the argument. Yeah, that, that yeah, that's exactly the point I was that I was trying to make. That, I see. Okay. That the, I thought you were the, meaning more more literally that the aerosols would spread, and that, that's true to some extent. Well, the, the aerosols would spread, but it, but it's the teleconnections that I'm more referring to, right? So yeah, the yeah. um uh the the point I'm making is that you can't have a, a cleanly and neatly isolated effect, even if you might want to slightly dominate your impact in the Arctic. It's just not feasible to imagine it as being a system where you can isolate and manipulate one component or the other. So that that's an important lesson, but not the whole story. What I'm keen to draw you on is to understand the balance between these techniques. So I think what you're describing is that you're quite bearish on microspheres. You seem to think the microspheres are going to require pretty gargantuan amounts of material to achieve an effect which is of of use to the system overall. Is that, is that how you how you see these microspheres? 
Yeah, I am, I think, quite bearish on them if we're going to use that phrase. I mean, there's, there's two reasons for that. that is, we, we can come to the material in a sec, but, but firstly, I think there's, there's, you know, there's a paper that came out last year, which I think was a really good analysis of, of what these might achieve in the Arctic system. And, and it looked in quite a lot of detail at you know, what would happen under various different surface types if you have a lot of microspheres. And the important point of this is that actually some surfaces in the Arctic, especially when you have lots of snow, are actually very bright, right? So yes, new sea ice, which is relatively thin and doesn't have a snow cover, isn't that intrinsically bright. It has a, a sort of medium albedo. But there are surfaces in the Arctic that have very high albedos. And there's a potential to actually harm, right? So there's a potential to warm the Arctic microbeads if their optical properties are not 100% perfect, which, which they presumably wouldn't be. And yeah, so Madeline actually pointed this out, that some of the work that was done on these microspheres have assumed that they don't have any warming effect. Whereas in reality, there is a warming effect because they act like little greenhouses, right? And they, they trap the, my understanding is that they, they trap the heat inside them to some extent i think particularly in the infrared but i'd have to go back and look that up so they're certainly not they don't perform perfectly they're, they're yeah, good exactly. on, so, so they if you presumably would have they're brighter than dark ocean and they're probably brighter than say new sea ice but there's a potential they might be actually darker than some very high albedo surfaces that you get in the arctic yeah and so so, so the, the, the net effect is quite dependent on what you assume in terms of a they're like imperfections in their optical properties um, and B, also their kind of clumping. To what extent do they clump when they get into ocean, open ocean versus sit neatly on top? Um, and and the, there's kind of only really a couple of papers on this. One is the, the field style paper, which is kind of making the case for this idea and generally is more... The who, pa who paper? I didn't, I didn't catch... Field. Yeah, Leslie, that's Leslie, Leslie Field, yeah. Yes. We tried and, to go and on that's the podcast all and it was a bit of a mess up and we... We didn't. We did do the appointment. Didn't go ahead as planned, and we've been trying to get her back, but that hasn't yet happened. So hopefully she will come on at some point. So the the other thing that I think it's worth mentioning about these microspheres is the the mass efficiency is very very different. Although they're tiny, they're orders of magnitude, many orders of magnitude larger than an SRM particle, right? And so there's a huge difference in terms of the amount of material you've got to add to get an optical get the same optical effect because the um it's only the top top down surface that counts any thickness any physical thickness of the particle doesn't help you and these particles are very physically thick compared to uh srm particles right yeah exactly and, and i think that's the second point which i make in the paper and, and, and which i think is an important one is that if you then do the kind of back of the envelope calculation for how much volume of material you're imagining if you want to cover the Arctic, say, it's actually really quite astoundingly large, right? So if you take the, the field at L paper, which essentially kind of proposes this idea and, and put the numbers through to get a coating that would achieve like significant forcing enough to kind of, you know, make a big dent in saving sea ice under high emission scenarios, you're talking about something like half of the current container ship volume of, of current world trade taking these beads into the Arctic every year. Um, and, and the original paper also makes the point that deployment via aircraft is unlikely because, again, the volume is really large uh, of the material that you require. So it's not a small undertaking to imagine doing this on kind of pan-Arctic or pan-Antarctic scales. It's an undertaking. Yeah, you'd have to spread it with tractors or whatever, right, to, to do those. But, I mean, I've done um, some work on spreading, um, liming the ocean, so spreading hydroxides over the ocean using aircraft. And it was not a very practical idea, to be honest. You know, we, we mainly did it to prove it didn't work rather than doing it to prove that it did work. But 
you know, I think you're, you're, you're coming up against a lot of similar issues. And the problem is that it's relatively simple to fly over the Arctic. You know, people do that routinely all the time in airliners, but, you know, operating basically land craft, although there's no land, is a whole different ballgame, particularly if the ice is thin and you're trying to, you're trying to support the ice optically where it's thinnest you've necessarily got areas where you're going to have you know fresh ice and you can't run a tractor over it so i mean the other thing that doesn't get mentioned with this idea is i just think the ecological effects are you know likely to be pretty major you know you're putting a lot of of foreign material into a an ecosystem which is not you know typically robust we're not talking like a slag heap in northern england that's been used to being polluted for a century or more it's a pretty pristine environment although filled with some weird toxic chemicals that come out through equivalent of fractional distillation on a global basis but you don't have um you don't have uh, much foreign material going in and so the stuff that lives there isn't used to having large amounts of glass turning up that it's not previously seen before so yeah i i mean my personal feeling is it's a pretty terrible idea i think it might have some use for saving glaciers for example where you have a lot of till when a glacier melts down you have a lot of rock flour and bits of gravel and stuff like that that end up on top of the glacier as the top water melts and runs or the top ice melts off and runs away as water and i can see these microspheres being genuinely useful for that because they can be applied you know through spray hoses or aircraft or helicopters or people walking around with rucksacks or whatever you know there's lots of different ways you can imagine it but that you know walking around an alpine glacier spreading microspheres is very very different from spreading them in the middle of the arctic ocean you know potentially in a polar night where the operating conditions are pretty horrific right wouldn't really want to be taking a contract to go and drive a tractor around in the arctic for six i think to be fair they imagine something more like spraying them from a big ship through some kind of like large i guess sort of giant hose type thing i don't know exactly how they imagine it but i don't think they imagine yeah the point i'm making is that however you however you imagine it it's not going to be it's not going to be a pleasant for the workers and it's not going to be you know you can't pop down to 7-eleven or go to watch a film in the cinema or take your kids to school when you're on the ice for six months of the year and you're imagining what would be quite a large workforce you know if it's not robotized uh, uh, some really significant ecosystem effects and genuinely challenging mechanical engineering effects and what you're what you're adding to this is you're basically saying, well, also, not only is it not mass efficient from a physics point of view, but it's also not climatologically necessarily particularly effective. And so the overall result in my mind, and other people are free to form their own opinions, is that to me, this microsphere's idea as a large scale climate engineering intervention, not necessarily as a way of preserving an individual glacier or whatever, but as a large-scale intervention, to me, it's pretty much dead and buried. I mean, it just does not seem viable to me. Is, does that reflect your own personal view or not? That's, that's probably my personal opinion, yeah. I think one last point which kind of adds to that is just that from a physics point of view, it's a lot harder to have a big climate effect at the surface and at the top of the atmosphere in the Arctic because the atmosphere itself has absorbed some of the radiation coming in, right? Like the clouds in the Arctic a lot of the time. How much? And so, I mean, like, what's the kind of typical I think it's energy loss? Like I'm not sure. Really? Um, That's a lot. Okay. So that the so, clouds, there's that dark clouds in the Arctic, basically, and dust absorbing um, and, and a bit of direct absorption by certain wavelengths. I think it's more that, I mean, don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. Significant. It's like changing the albedo at the surface. Has, it, it's quite a lot harder to have a big radiative effect out the surface than it is at the top of the atmosphere because of the actual absorption of the atmosphere itself, the air in it, and because of the reflection of clouds. 
Um, okay. I didn't realize that it was, you know, that much, you know, tens of percentages. I figured it might be, you know, the order of 5%, something like that, but, but it's, you're saying it's a lot more. I guess once you've got, <laughs> if you've got uh, dark clouds over white ice, it might make a big difference. But if you've got white clouds over dark ocean, then the surface is going to be dominant. So you're going to have to bear in mind what your particular sort of optical column might be. Okay. Um, one thing that we haven't discussed, which you did mention as being part of your paper, is the uh, MCB. We, we haven't gone into much depth with that. We, we talked a little bit about the different types of clouds and how you might modify them in the Arctic, but you haven't talked in great depth about the about the MCB applicability. So what I understand from talking to the MCB's cheerleaders is that you have a process why, whereby they cool the incoming water. So the idea is to make sure that the seawater, which is approaching the Arctic, the fluxes of sea currents going into the Arctic and currents going out of the Arctic, and what they want to do is to put their cooling ships over the areas of the Arctic where the uh, water is exposed to a lot of solar heating and is bringing in large volumes of warmer water, not necessarily warm, but warmer water into the Arctic. Is, is that how you imagine things? To be honest, I think the, in terms of what's in the literature, there's less detail really than that. I think that that's, I've certainly heard that described, and I know that William Smith is a PhD student working at the Centre for Climate Repair in Cambridge, is, is working some of these topics. But I haven't seen papers that talk about what you just described as the, the actual change in the water temperature and hoping that the fluxes of water will then sort of pass that cooling into the Arctic. What we look at mostly is just the kind of, from a microphysics perspective, is there much evidence for how it's different in Arctic clouds to, to non-Arctic clouds? And, and in particular, where you have these colder regions, you've got more mixed phase clouds, so clouds of both water and ice particles, and, and the extent to which that might change the efficiency of wind cloud brightening. Okay, um, and- let's go to that in some depth, because I, I really want to understand how this works. So your current conception of marine cloud brightening is that it's done with liquid water clouds. So there's no, they're, they're relatively low clouds and they're done in relatively warm places. So there's no ice component in the clouds. Yeah. And that's important because the optical properties of ice in clouds are very different from the optical properties of liquid water in clouds. Right. So you're proposing or considering that we might analyze the idea of mixed phase clouds. So I guess what you're referring to here is marine cloud brightening, which is still working on relatively low cloud. But because it's in colder air, then there'll be a significant or dominant ice component in those marine stratocumulus clouds that are being amended. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and there's essentially one study on this which looks at it in detail, and that's by Ben Kravitz et al. from 2014. And they run a kind of process model looking at cloud processes. And, and, and essentially what they find is that there is a drop in efficiency in, in these mixed-phase clouds, but it's not. Catastrophic drop, and, and that the there is still a, a cooling effect. That's that's kind of their, their key finding. Okay, so adding um, nuclei into these mixed phase clouds will still make them shinier and brighter, but it just has less effect because a dominance of small droplets makes less difference per number of nuclei added than it would do in a liquid water only cloud, right? Yes, yeah, okay. And so in practical terms, how does that change what I might want to do in the, um, in the Arctic? Because the conventional marine cloud brightening, MCB, will normally work on incoming radiation by uh, what, what you might call fluffifying the clouds. So it turns them from dark, angry storm clouds 
into friendly fluffy white clouds, right? Uh, so your your fluffification process doesn't work optically when there's no sunlight. So what what about the Arctic makes it useful to consider marine cloud brightening as a direct intervention rather than doing it, you know, for example, off Florida with the intention of catching the water that is heading up to the Arctic? Well, I think just on the on the first part, you would you imagine doing marine cloud brightening only in the summer months, like the spring through summer. I think if you're doing it, ah, okay. Arctic. So you're not looking um, at using marine cloud brightening type techniques to alter winter clouds. You're suggesting that you only do it in the polar summer. Is that correct? I think if you were if you wanted to restrict this properly to the polar region, then obviously you'd have to follow the sunlight if you're trying to reflect away sunlight, right? So, but it, it's very much it depends how strict you're being about polar here. Right? If you're thinking kind of 50 degrees north versus 80 degrees north, that's a different story. But um, my impression is if, you, if you're, there's not a huge amount of literature well, on this. 50 so degrees north is Cornwall, right? So it's, that's not. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. So like, as in, if you're, I think we, if you're, you're talking about genuinely Arctic marine cloud brightening, of course, you would only want to do that when the sunlight's reflect, right? And in fact, you, you would have a warming effect if you did marine cloud brightening in the winter months because you would decrease the amount of long wave radiation escaping. And how would that Arctic happen? Itself. If you brighten the clouds, why would the long wave radiation be affected in that way? Uh, okay, that's a good point. Actually, I should be careful. Because if it's, if, it, if, you, if it's the you... polar night, then there's no. My understanding is that the, the degree to which the clouds emit long wave infrared radiation is is dominated by their temperature, and doing polar strat uh, marine cloud brightening would not would not make any real difference because you're not changing the temperature of the cloud top. It would just be useless basically because it wouldn't take it wouldn't change the, the uh, incoming radiation because there isn't any, and it wouldn't change the outgoing radiation because it wouldn't change the temperature. So I'm not quite sure why it would have any effect, really. Yeah, I think you might be right. I should be careful. I'm not. I think you might be right. I'm, I was thinking of marine cloud lightning as being the opposite of thinning, but I think perhaps it, it wouldn't have. It would depend if you're having an effect on essentially the passing through of longer radiation from the surface through the cloud. And okay, I don't know so if in, you would. In theory, well, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting. That's an interesting concept. So. If, if there was a variant of marine cloud brightening, and there, and there is, there is an idea with marine cloud lightning that you could do something which is similar to cirrus cloud thinning, right? And one of the problems with cloud modification more generally is that you, you risk having opposite effects because clouds are very heterogeneous. They're not all the same cloud in all the same place, right? And so if you do things that are not quite what you mean to do, you get yourself in a pickle. And one of the effects that you're potentially describing there is that you're you, you have the capacity, in theory, to marine stratocumulus cloud, which is a relatively low cloud, that's why it's named, and therefore allow the heat to get out to space as far infrared radiation more readily than might otherwise be the case. But there isn't a proposal that I'm aware of to use marine cloud brightening technology as a direct sort of stripping technology for marine stratocumulus clouds, right? But if you could do that, if it were possible to do that, then the effect of that would be that you could make these clouds vanish and cool down the Arctic. Whether that is actually possible or not is is moot at this point. There's no known proposal to do that. So right? it didn't actually make it into our paper because it came out quite recently. It was after our initial literature search, but there is a paper that came out in towards the end of last year by Villanueva, I think is the name, which does talk about this idea of mixed phase regime cloud thinning in the Arctic, which I think what you just described. And are those marine stratocumulus clouds or are they much higher clouds or what? I don't know what clouds they restrict themselves to. 
I haven't, this paper wasn't, it didn't make it into our review because it came up a bit later, so I don't know in detail. Well, if you could provide a link to that and any other interesting papers, uh, just a, a note to our listeners or occasionally readers that we do try and put links certainly to all of the papers discussed in podcast uh, summaries. And we also put in any other interesting notes or papers that are provided by our guests. So sometimes quite voluminous, in fact. So it's always worth having a little check on a podcast description rather than blindly clicking through because there are occasional nuggets in there that you might miss otherwise. Right. So we've got some potential ways of making marine cloud brightening work in slightly balked way to do some interesting polar stuff. And we've got SAI that we can modify a bit but not to the point where we can isolate it from the rest of the atmosphere and not also much future as it's we currently see it for the ice 911 idea outside perhaps preserving small areas of darker ice rather than there's a more general environmental modification we've also gone into quite a lot of detail about the various dynamic processes in the atmosphere and sometimes the ocean which underpin the physics behind all these decisions. So um, what have we lost, missed, or overlooked? Let me think. I think that's a fairly good summary. I think we, I would like to plug in the end of our paper and our summary, we have a figure which kind of tries to summarize many of these effects. So you've just talked about various different effects and we kind of have a, an overarching figure that basically points to individual papers that propose certain mechanisms and it's, it's, it's describing, it's trying to describe what causes residual changes in the Arctic under stratospheric aerosol injection in, in general terms. So hopefully that figure might be useful if people are kind of scratching their heads about all the different things that we've talked about and how they fit together. I think maybe one thing that always does require a discussion when we talk about polar SAI, and this is partly informing kind of the, the opinion that I expressed earlier about this not being truly local, is, is how it affects tropical precipitation if you do strong forcing in one high latitude region. In a hemispherically asymmetric way, you have quite a large impact on tropical precipitation patterns. And in particular, thinking about the intertropical convergence zone, which is a kind of band of low pressure, uh, deep convection and rainfall that, that sits around the equator and moves north and south with the seasons towards the, the warmer hemisphere and has a big impact on, on tropical precipitation in, in lots of regions around the world. And we kind of know that if you, if you were to say to a lot of SAI in just the Arctic and not anything in the southern hemisphere, you would have a displacing effect on that band of precipitation. And this can have really quite large uh, impacts on rainfall and primary productivity in regions sitting on either side of the hemisphere, either side of the equator. Um, and so that, I think that is a very strong reason to, to think that doing... Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. ...one so, the region would be a bad idea. Um, yeah, so and just to sort of comment on that, I, the um, intertropical conversion zone is... Roughly equivalent to the rising leg of the Brewer-Dobson circulation, right? Uh, not the Brewer-Dobson, but the the, the Hadley circulation troposphere. So yeah, down. yeah, it's that, yeah, it's the ha- yeah, it's the Hadley circulation. But what I'm saying it's the equivalent. It's the rising pipe at the equator, which is in the stratosphere. The rising pipe's part of the Brewer-Dobson circulation, and in the troposphere, it's the the Hadley circulation. So you've got the upward, the rising arm of two cells, one in the troposphere and one in the stratosphere, but they are you know, approximately equivalent between the two, right? Yeah, that's yeah. why I was drawing the comparison. And, and right? it's, a, it's a convergence zone because it's air is moving towards the equator. The surface air is moving towards the equator from both sides, north and south, yeah. because it's moving back in that circulation. 
yeah, yeah. and then that gets messed up if you if you cool one hemisphere so that, that's reasonably well established often people, when people talk about arctic is it not a lazy shorthand for 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 doing both hemispheres or do you think that it's genuinely the case that people uh, could plausibly just do the arctic because i kind of assumed that it would be pretty silly to do the arctic on its own and far more sensible to do the arctic as part of a a polar strategy which does both poles. i think that's probably true but i think at least I'm, I, I feel like I see occasionally people talking about Arctic geoengineering as if you could do just Arctic geoengineering at large scale and not think about the global implications. And I guess I, this is sort of me getting on my hobby horse again, but you, you have to think about the global implications and therefore you have to also think about how your hemispheric balance works. And as soon as you start doing that, you're, you're thinking about optimizing SAI globally, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say about this again, is just that in my head at least, you can't really think about, okay, I want to do SAI to save the sea ice, or I want to do SAI to preserve the Arctic alone, because you have to then open the kind of worms, of, okay, well, how does this affect global circulation? And then you have to think about, okay, well, where else do I need to inject? And quite quickly, you become in the business of trying to work up your optimized injection strategy, which is, I think, really the, the way that any of these discussions would, would end up. And, and so that's kind of the point I was trying to make. Okay. So if we tried to summarize the podcast into a too long didn't read or too long didn't listen uh, then what we might do is say that you can't isolate the arctic and treat it as a separate system you have to view it as part of a global climate system and therefore a global intervention strategy you don't have the option of considering it any other way and the ice 911 microspheres idea is basically uh, for a wide range of reasons probably not that plausible and marine cloud brightening has some arctic specific aspects but opportunities to apply it in arctic specific ways but the research on this is relatively early so it's hard to draw any firm conclusions about how marine cloud brightening might work in practice and how we might modify it and it's possible that future research might actually show that marine cloud brightening wasn't terribly useful in this way because you can't do the kind of polar specific things that you might wish to do, right? I think that's the first summary. One final summarizing point I'd add is that it appears that with more high latitude injection, you would likely generate a greater cooling in the polar regions per unit of injection, but would probably generate something like a factor of two less global cooling per unit of injection. Okay. So in terms of you know, straight mass efficiency, you want to inject relatively more towards the equator, but in terms of restoring your pre-industrial climate more effectively, then you might want to have at least a tweak towards polar distribution because that gets you around the problem where you are uh, having this can of tuna effect where you are um, not correcting your, where, where global warming has more effect on the poles than it does on the equator because it's mainly working on outgoing radiation and stratospheric aerosol injection mainly works on incoming radiation. So you're not keeping the ends of your can of tuna cold very effectively using SAI in a way that you might do with something like cirrus cloud thinning that works on uh, on outgoing. Um, you, you mentioned cirrus cloud thinning a bit earlier, but you didn't, as far as I recall, come to a firm conclusion about its use or otherwise. Did your, was your research, did your research give enough information or offer enough detail that might help us understand whether serious cloud thinning really is something which is quite useful in the Arctic, or is it unlikely to be so? Yeah, there's, there's, the literature is pretty sparse, and it's not very consistent that some of the findings actually, you know, 
don't replicate other findings that in theory should agree, right? So that there's um, it, there was a potential for quite a large radius of forcing if serious cloud thinning was was possible and worked, right? So so there is actually you know some of the results in the literature are quite uh, the radius of forcing you're getting is significant enough to take this seriously, right? Like there, there is a, a a genuine cooling effect, and especially in the polar regions, that it's, it's quite a large cooling effect. Um, but that's not consistent across studies, and there's only a few studies, and the actual process understanding, as far as I understand it, of uh, the microphysics here is really in its infancy. So I think it's, it's probably too early to really say anything confident about okay. serious cloud thinning in general. Beyond, beyond that, it's not only the, the physics that's in question with serious cloud thinning. The engineering is a real problem as well, not because it's hard to do, because it is, but What's hard about serious cloud thinning is to do the right bits at the right times in the right way. And because of the sensitivity of the system, you can end up with perverse results and end up with it causing the opposite effect. It's just genuinely, it's like, you know, it's kind of almost like playing snooker that you've got these really difficult long shots. You've got to really understand the system that you're intervening in to try and get to the point where your intervention makes the difference you want it to make, right? It's a, it's a, there's a strong potential for screw ups using that technology, right? Yeah. And part of the reason for thinking about it in the polar regions is that at least potentially, one little part of that might be somewhat easier in that there's just fewer naturally occurring ice nuclei in the high latitudes where the air is kind of cleaner. And that might make sewers cloud thinning somewhat easier. But again, just, just lots of uncertainty about this really. I think we don't know much about it yet. Okay. So ice 911 bad. Stratospheric aerosols, good, but can't do them just in the Arctic. Marine cloud brightening and cirrus cloud thinning needs further research. Hung jury. I think I wouldn't go as far as ice number one bad. I think, as you said, I'm interested in the local applications of this technology. It seems like, you know, especially on glaciers, maybe some small regions of sea ice, if you really cared about one small region, maybe there's a potential. I, I, you know, we are in a situation where we have to think about all options. I don't want to sort of basically... No, I understand. Uh, you don't, but, you don't but want I'm to not be... confident that it, it's. It, I agree with you that on on large scales, it seems impossible to be like climatically useful. Essentially, okay. Um, well, that's great. The one thing I wanted to try and sneak in at the back end, if I may, mm-hmm. is polar stratospheric clouds. You haven't mentioned them. Are they important? Can you modify them from a climatological point of view? And does anything that we do with them fiddle with them to the extent that it might affect ozone in a way that we have to worry about? I don't know. Okay. Well, that's quick and easy. Not everybody knows about every specific thing, do they? So um, we'll get someone on at some point to talk about polar stratospheric clouds. So, right. Well, I suppose I better try and find some spurious and entirely unjustified reason to reject a paper. But I can't really think of any right now. So I'm going to say it's pretty useful. I'm going to accept it rather reluctantly because I feel like I'm just not doing my job properly. I, should, I think I've accepted two out of at least the last three papers about on the podcast, so I'm getting a bit sloppy in my old age, and uh, I'm not too happy about that. But uh, we are where we are, so you've got a review or two stamp of approval, and I look forward to reading your paper in more detail. I'll we'll get around to it, I'm sure I really do, and um, seeing it be used effectively to guide further research, and also hopefully someone will come along and fill in some of the gaps in it as well because you know the serious cloud thing and marine cloud brightening in the polar regions is pretty poorly understood and we could do with learning a lot more about it so thanks very much for coming on have you got anything further you'd like to say or is that all we've got to cover today no that's it um thanks so much for having me on 
Cheers. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye.